Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 267, and I had a conversation with Paul Evans Pedersen Jr. He is an author and a journalist and a folklorist and a retired fireman and a Grammy Award nominee singer-songwriter, performer, person. Lots of things, lots of quills in his hat. He wrote a book called The Legendary Pine Barrens, New Tales from Old Haunts, and it is about the ghost, goblin-y, folklore stories uh, in and around the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. Real fun uh, talking with him. We covered all sorts of things from what it was like to be a firefighter for his whole career. Uh, We talked about arsonists. We talked about ghost stories from his childhood. We talked about aliens and technology, all sorts of fun stuff. So I think you're going to dig this episode. The usual stuff, Hey Human Podcast social media can be found on Facebook and Instagram with just typing in Hey Human Podcasts. Easy breezy. You can find my personal social media under Susan Ruthism, S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. While you're on HeyHumanPodcast.com, you don't have to be on there to email me. I'm just saying that if you happen to go to HeyHumanPodcast.com, you will find a links page. The links page has tons of information about every guest I've ever had. And uh, you can find links to books and websites and articles and all sorts of things. So definitely check that out. You'll also find the storefront there on HeyHumanPodcast.com. You can get t-shirts and hats and all sorts of fun things that help support Hey Human. Another great way to support Hey Human Podcast is to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, If you want to check out more stuff I do, go to SusanRuth.com. You can sign up on the mailing list there. Check out my artwork, music, that kind of thing. If you're into music, go to iTunes or Spotify and you'll find me under Susan Ruth. So many places to find me that uh, if you left a rock, there I'll be. Okay, uh, that's about that for that information. Oh, I will tell you, I've been watching The Young Pope on HBO. It's really great. Really, really great. I know I'm late to the party on that one, but Holy moly. Sorry if you can hear cars in the background here. I'm I'm traveling right now. But anyway, it's so good. And it's it really makes you think about the nature of God, the nature of faith, um, just uh, the flaws of humanity, you know, where where we are in our hearts and our minds. And I, I don't know, I'm really digging it a lot. The writing is excellent. The acting is phenomenal. So if you're into that kind of thing, check out The Young Pope. It's great. I think that's about it. Enjoy this conversation uh, with Paul. We we recorded it, by the way, uh, last, last winter. So it's been a minute to try and get this one to the front of the queue. But here it is now. Um, thanks for listening. Be well. Be kind. Thank you. And uh, here we go. Paul Evans Pedersen Jr., welcome to Hey Human. It's nice to be here. That's a Scandinavian spelling, is it not? Yep, it's Norwegian. Yeah. Yep. Lots of E's and things. (laughs) The family is from Kiome, Norway, which is a little bit south, southwest of Oslo. And yeah, it's we had one Pedersen come over 
or try to come over on April 14th, uh, 19, what, 12, 14, on the Titanic. And, of course, she didn't make it. Mm. One of the brothers, yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's quite yeah. a historical moment. Yes. Let's, yes. Uh, where did you grow up? Were you uh, U.S.? I grew up, I grew up actually in a couple towns. I grew up in, uh, I was born in Collingswood. My parents moved to Haddon Heights until I was seven. Then we moved to Haddonfield until I was 11. Haddonfield was great. Haddonfield is very, very historical, colonial, settled in the 1600 South Jersey town. And I, I really liked living there. And then we moved to Collingswood, where I stayed until I moved to Houston when I was 20, 25. And I moved to Houston to be in the fire department and was there for five years. But yeah, my time in the time in Haddonfield, I mean, that, that house, you want to talk about a haunted house. That was, that was a haunted house. Did you have experiences in there then? Oh yeah. Very active. Very active. I've written songs about that place, and it's it's a historical part of Haddonfield and a historical part of New Jersey. Who is haunting it? Do you know? I believe the man that hung himself in our garage. He hung himself in 1955, which is when I was born. And uh, when we moved there, it was to rent the house because his widow couldn't live there anymore. And, I mean, I, the, the stories I heard were crazy. But she had come home from the store and opened the garage, and there he was hanging. Oh, awful. Yeah. And when we moved in there, we had a lot of people tell us halfway, cra you know, not crazy, but halfway kidding around, uh, make sure you watch out for Mr. Steroitis. And they kept telling us that, uh, Mr. Steroitis, but... Because we didn't know the neighbors quite yet, you know, and they were, and some kids come running up our steps a couple weeks after we moved in and said, he's out here. And sure enough, there was a guy in a car <laughs> that would stare at our house for no reason. And this was, I mean, you know, 1963, 64. So you didn't have immediate communications. And my mother would call the police, and by the time they got there, he'd already left. And we would write down his tag number, and they would come back and say, well, no tag exists. And it would take a couple days for him to do that, because you didn't have instant, like I said, communications like we do now. And we never found out who he was, but I found a picture in a toolbox, and it was him. The guy in that car was... I won't say the name, but it was him. It was a picture of him. Of the guy that who hung himself? Of, that hung himself, yeah. Yeah. I mean, now, so many things happened on that street where I lived there. We were there for four years. And it was, it was, an, it was it's right where they found the first dinosaur bones in the United States, the Hattasaurus. And I played probably on top of more of them. Because our street would, could, you would go down my street and turn left, and that would be the bottom of Springfield Terrace. It was a hill. And at the, at, when you got to the end of the hill, there was a 40-foot drop into woods that were around Evans Pond, which that's all still there. And who knows 
you know, I mean, we found milk bottles and we found all kinds of old Indian relics and stuff. And there was a little path that would go down and we called it Dead Man's Hill because that's where I would sled in, in the winter. And off to the left of Dead Man's Hill was a spring. And we either called it Salamander Pond or Indian Springs. It had a couple names. And I was, we would drink out of it every time we went down there and catch salamanders. And while I was looking for a salamander, I found this round, perfectly round rock. And put the rock in my pocket and we were walking up the street to go back home and I threw it like tossing it up, seeing how heavy it was, I dropped it, and it broke, and inside of it was a gold coin. Oh, my goodness. And come to find out that that's how the pirates would, would disguise gold and camouflage their gold, is wrap it in clay, put it, and then bury it somewhere where they knew where it was, but nobody else could ever find it. Who would think you would find it? They probably thought it was at the bottom of a well. And that thing was there was rocks around the salamander pond and it was it was it was a really neat place. Did you go back and get more? No, you know what? I never did. It caused such a stir when I was a kid. I was in the Boy Scouts and I had the scout leader. I'll give you a dollar for it. And then somebody else in that troop would say, We'll give you a dollar ten. And my father kept it. And you know what? I never found out what happened to it. I mean, he's passed on, so, you know, who knows? <laughs> wow. Yeah, it could be somewhere in my in my mother's possessions to this day. It's just one of them things. That's wild. Imagine yeah. what, it's, what it's worth today. Oh, my Lord. If that, an ounce of gold, what is it, $1,800 an ounce? Yeah. But just, just what it was, because it had weird markings on it, and it, like, you know, several crosses and, and you know, so who knows what it was. So that sounds it, like perhaps it's uh, Spanish, if it had crosses on it. I was just going to say, it could have been a doubloon. Yeah. yeah or a Spanish piece of aid or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Wow. But, uh, yeah, it was great. Did you ever interact with the man in the house on your own, besides, like, in the yard or whatnot? He would stand, uh, he would stand at the end of that driveway where the garage was in the summer and whistle. And it was a freaky, and I've heard it before, and it stops me in my tracks. And I wrote a song called Black Plaid Curtains, because when we moved in that house, there was a little, there was a a part past the kitchen in the back of the house. On the windows were black plaid curtains, so that's the name of the song. But that song was all about this, this guy. And I swear it was still, it's, it, it was him. And he would whistle this really crazy, haunting melody. And just stand there, and I would see him standing there. And I would tell my parents, and they'd, oh, you're just telling a story. Yeah, you don't really hear that. And it was like, I can't believe these people don't hear this. You know, why doesn't anybody else in the household hear this? Because I surely heard it. Do you so I'm sorry. Do you think that a childhood that experienced these sorts of things, you know, Spanish blooms and ghosts, and that created the environment for you to grow into a folklorist? Oh yeah, absolutely. It was it was the it was a bedrock for it, you know. Because I would tell I I went to I walked to school and I made a friend. His name was Glenn, 
And I went and picked up Glenn, which when I say pick up, I go to his house, meet him, and we walk together. I went and picked up Glenn one morning, and his father was a huge real estate salesman. He had a very, very lucrative and large real estate firm in South Jersey. And I met his father at his uh, dining room table, <laughs> and he says, so what do you do? And he's asking me this question and that question. And I brought up the stuff about the house and the coin. And he's looking at me like, this is a nut. And he actually told his son, you're not walking to school with this kid. So it kind of, when, when I was young, it kind of worked against me because people thought I was crazy or, or just, you know, slinging the bull. And I started writing this stuff down in second grade. And me and a kid named Alan Hardigan, or uh, Tommy, oh man, I, I, I can't remember his last name. But the, our little storybook was called Tom and Paul's Tall Tales. And it was a mixing of these things that would happen, but we embellished it a little bit and added. And, and that started me off in, in writing and telling stories. And yeah, it's, but it's... You know, it's, it doesn't absolutely fall into the folklore. It was more of a, like a reportage type of, type of thing where most of it was facts, but we mixed a little, yeah. And that's kind of how I write and tell my stories. You know, most of my, most of my stories are based in truth, and then I add a little bit to it. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, the suspension of disbelief. How far can you take that? You know, where, where can you go with that suspension of disbelief? And I think that's what makes a good storyteller. So you've always been a storyteller from the get-go. Yeah. Did you study literature or anything like that in college, or did you just go? No, no I just, I, I always liked to write. I always liked, you know, words in the English language and stuff. Um, I'm not, I, I went to college to be a firefighter. You know, the, the time I spent in college was in the University of Houston. And, you know, you had to go and you got 72 credits for you know, the academy, the time you spent learning about fire suppression. And then I did some more schooling for uh, hazmat, hazardous materials containment and stuff like that. But I, I got an associate's degree out of it, but that was it. That's, yeah, yeah. It's for fire suppression, not for literature or English or anything like that. Did you retire from firefighting or did you only yes. get up? Okay. Yep. Yep. No, I, I, I would like to still do it. I played Santa Claus this year on a fire truck. I volunteered for the town I live in and it was great to get on that fire truck again. Yeah. I really, it really sparked the thing like, man, I miss this. Yeah. But, I, you know, I'm not really wanting to get up at three o'clock in the morning and jump on a fire truck when it's 12 degrees out. You know, it's, let the younger guys do that now. <laughs> <laughs> I, what interested me, so our mutual friend Christian Barth told me about you and sent me a link to your book, The Legendary Pine Barrens, and uh, told me a little bit about you. And what intrigued me uh, to talk with you was the idea of the storyteller because I think it is such a it's an art that is is losing momentum and it's a beautiful art and so many of our stories that are passed down from generation to generation those are getting lost and and especially uh, 
in, in whatever white culture is in that, that. I don't think that that's a real prevalent storytelling uh, envi- yeah, really, environment. Yeah, It's really a shame because South Jersey had storytellers as far back as the 1600s. And people, storytellers would walk from village to village. I mean, they, were, they weren't even villages then, some of them. They were like encampments. And if they didn't, if they couldn't work or didn't want to work or whatever, they would tell stories and people would either feed them or give them a little bit of money at, or, you know, at, just even for food was great. And that's all they did. They would wander around and tell stories. And, of course, I'm sure that's how a lot of our legends here in South Jersey got started and grew at, because it doesn't matter where at in South Jersey you are, you're going to hear the same story about the Jersey Devil, you know, there's two versions of it, and you're going to hear one of them, and some people get real mad when you tell the one, you know, there's two of them, and one of them has the Jersey Devil being born to Mother Leeds, and there's always a big argument, well, what was her name, Deborah, no, it was this, no, you know, so that's a whole thing in itself, what was Mother Leeds' first name, and... That's why I go by Mother Leeds. I just call her Mother Leeds. That's why there's no argument. But then you have to worry about, well, who was her husband? <laughs> well, he was a pirate. No, he wasn't. He was a town drunk. So <clears throat> going into it, you know you're going to have a, a controversy right from the first minute of telling the story. But the two versions are, in a nutshell, one of them, he flew out the chimney after he was born. He morphed into the creature. As soon as he was born, sprouted two wings, the head of a horse, killed everybody in the room, flew out the chimney, and was gone into the night. And the second version is he didn't kill everybody in the room, and he was born normal. And then as the night wore on, he turned into the Jersey Devil slowly and didn't kill anybody. This still flew out the chimney. Now, some people will tell you he's got red eyes. Some legends have that he breathes fire. You know, and, and you're going to hear, about well, you can't breathe for it. You hear all kinds of different things, and I believe that is from storytellers. Each storyteller adding a little thing to make his story more believable. And I was actually going to leave the Jersey Devil. I had no plans of writing a story about the Jersey Devil when I wrote that book. I purposely left it out because it's been done to death. And my publisher, John Bryans, uh, the Christian knows, he said, you got to have a Jersey Devil story. I said, oh, John, come on, there's too many of them. He goes, put your, put your taste on one, put your twist into it. <laughs> so I was in my pool, and I saw two birds, a light on the side of my pool, and I guess it was hump day. And I'm sitting there watching, I thought, well, what would happen if, if that kind of like oozed into my pool and got in the filter and the water's nice and warm, it could act like a womb. And that's exactly how I wrote my version of how the Jersey Devil came to be. So it was, you know, laying there in the pool one afternoon and, and seeing nature happen. And that's how I got my version of the Jersey Devil. And it makes perfect sense. How, how how did you pick your stories for the for the legends? My stories were picked. Oh, some of them, well, most of them, were stories that I would tell my kids. 
as I was riding around in the Pine Barrens. And stories that I had heard uh, from my father, who I guess taught me how to how about storytelling. Because every time we would go to bed, me and my sister, dad, tell us a story. And he could tell a story on the fly. It was amazing. And he would just come up with these crazy stories. And we would fall asleep with him telling us these stories. He had the knack. And every time he would tell he would lay us down, tuck us in or whatever, and he'd go, so here's my story. And I'm actually going back to writing for a paper here in Hamilton, the Hamilton Gazette, and I'm going to call my column, so here's my story. <laughs> Love it. But that's, yeah, that's how he started every one, so here's my story. Well, I mean, it's in your DNA, right? Scandinavians are famous yep. for their storytelling. Yep, yep. So it's passed down, it's, you know, I got that and, and drumming from uh, my uncle, my uncle Norm. He was a, he was a great drummer. And I picked that trade up in talent when I was uh, 12. I'd love to hear a, a firefighting story. Oh, a firefighting story? Yeah. Oh, man, there's, there's so many of them. We rolled up on a house one time, and the place was really, really burning. And we got inside, and we found prophylactics stuffed with sterno all over the ceiling. And we got there just in time before they all took off. It was really a crazy way to st start a fire. So that's an ingenious way to be arsonist, is to stuff condoms full of sterno. Yep. Oh, you can't believe the way people start fires. It's, it's amazing. You know, I did a little work on the arson squad in Houston. And and the, the well, not talent, I guess, but that's the word for it. The talent people have put together ways of starting fire. It's amazing. It's amazing. But this particular fire I'm talking about, but you know what? The twist of the story is who the house belonged to, and I probably shouldn't go there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. Well, we put the fire out. Uh, before we did, me and a lieutenant got caught on a, a like a boardwalk, a catwalk that went all the way around the house. And I got smoke inhalation real bad. And I went to the hospital over that. And that was that was quite a fire. And it turned out that fire the house belonged to the guy that owns Hires Root Beer. Oh wow. Yeah. So he I think and a lot of people thought at the time that the house was Tiny Tim's. Hmm. If you, I don't know if you. Yeah, I know who Tiny Tim. Tim. Sure. Yeah, and yeah, so it was a that was a bit, that was a bad fire, bad fire. Do people, in your experience, start fires to get insurance money or to hide uh, nefarious doings? Both. Okay. Both. The first time I found a body, I was it was after the fire was out and we were searching around, you know, for hot spots and stuff, and I felt I I was moving my hands around on the floor. I was on the floor. And I got to a bed, a bedroom, and I started feeling around under the bed, and sure enough, there was a guy. And so I went and got my captain and the lieutenant, and, and you know, they cleared the room of smoke. And as they were moving stuff, everybody stopped and said, don't touch him, don't move. This is a cover-up. 
And we said, well, what do you mean? It's a cover-up. How do you know? It's The guy's dead. He's probably under there hiding from the fire. He goes, you wouldn't have found him on his back if he was hiding from the fire. And here he'd been shot. And somebody put him under the bed. If they would have put him under the bed laying on his stomach, nobody would have gave it a second thought. But that's how that guy got caught. Interesting. Because he had the body on his back. When you're look, when you're searching for air, when you're begging for air, you're on. You put your face right on the floor. I've had to do it a couple times, and it's a scary, scary situation. But there's no way you would roll on your back under a bed if you were trying to hide from fire. Yeah, and that's how he got caught. Interesting. It's usually really dopey things that people do that that get them caught. You know, you find that in crime and and arson. And like I said before, this, the stuff people do to hurt other people in fires. Like we had, we had an arsonist in Houston, in the, in the downtown ward, the first ward, that would cut a hole in the floor of the house and cover it with a rug. So when the firemen went in, yeah, and a guy that I went all through the academy with died in a situation like that. He fell through the floor to the basement. And for, they were booby traps. I mean, we've been shot at. It's it's amazing what fire department people go through, your first responders. Because you, know, you have a badge and a uniform, and they associate you with law enforcement and the police. And, I mean, there you are, right, on an open truck. You know, some nut wants to... We've had people go to the fire hydrant and fill the fire hydrant with cans and rocks so that when the pumper hooks up to it, it completely blows the impeller in the pump. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Wow. take hammers and, and uh, beat the threads off of the fire hydrants so you can't hook up to it. So the people are have ingenious ways of, you know, facing or committing destruction. It's It's amazing. You've probably seen a lot of good things too, though. I hope. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I've seen I've seen a lot of people, you know, helped a lot of people, and saved a couple lives. I've done CPR a couple times. I've had an experience where we pulled a kid out of a, a car wreck, and I mean he was he was hurt bad, and I I held him in my arms. I told him I said, "Look for the light," and he was gone that fast. So it, it, that makes you think. It really does. Have you ever had, I've read about firefighters, because they are the first responders on the scene, having experiences with people coming up to the car and helping the injured before anyone gets there. And then when everyone looks around for the person that helped, they're nowhere to be found. Have you had experiences with this sort of guardian angel type situations? Um, no, I've never seen anything like that. I know what you're talking about. I've, I've seen some pretty crazy things. Um, we got, we were fighting fire all night one time. This is before I moved to Houston. And we were back in a fire station, and I was, I was just exhausted, dead tired. And we had army cots to sleep on. They had put army cots in the back of the engine room for the guys that were uh, coming in, which I was one of. And I laid down on that army cot, and I felt myself going to sleep. And I saw myself sit up and get up off the cot and turned around and looked at me. I was looking at me. And it was, 
And that was the, the first you know, time I experienced like astral projection. I didn't believe it until then, but it was it was a real thing. And I've had flying dreams my whole life. Like I dreamed that I can, it's like I'm, all I have to do is make my legs move like I'm riding a bicycle and I just fly off. It's great. I love when it happens. <coughs> I can't control when it happens, which, you know, I wish I could. I wish I could make myself have a flying dream because they're, they're, uh, they're great. You probably can. Lucid dreaming is a thing. Yeah, well, I, you know what? If I could learn how to do that, I certainly would. Yeah, I, I enjoy every one of those I have. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of books about lucid dreaming. So, uh. well, you know what? It's, it's funny. I was told uh, by some people, some church people, when I got saved, I was told not to go near those books. Do not. Oh yeah. <laughs> when you get some real Baptists, they'll tell you that that's that's the work of the devil. You don't want to have anything to do with it yeah and it took me quite a few years until i thought well you know what i'm going to read them anyway and and and, yeah my curiosity got the best of me and i got into it a little bit but i never i should pursue it more yeah i bet you you'd be a natural at it it sounds like you've got a bit of a of a lung thing is that from being a fireman for so long yeah yep well i've had the wheeze People thought I did it on purpose when I was in school, and I almost got suspended for it a couple times. And I've been looked at by I don't know how many doctors. They don't know what it is. But I do I do have – I smoked my whole life from the time I was 11 oh. until – I'm sorry? Um, wow, that's so young. Oh, yeah. I started smoking when I was in sixth grade as, as a game we used to play called Chew the, Chew the Peg, right? And you played the game, and if you lost, you had to you had to buzz a cigarette, like make the ash real long. It was crazy, but it got me hooked on them. And I've been I was smoking from the time I was eleven till I got a knee replacement in two thousand and eleven. I told the doctor, I said, when I wake up, you better have a patch on both arms because I will find a way to smoke. I used to smoke in the shower. Is how bad it was. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, and when I had when I lived in Nashville, when I went down there for music, I had like four roommates, and they would get so mad when they buy my cigarette in the shower. Yeah, but I, you know, I would never put the cigarette out. I would get out or get in the shower and smoke it, and put it up on the on the shelf or along where the tiles were. And yeah, shouldn't have done it, but it was a slob. The Pine Barrens has this steeped history of of. All sorts of things that go bump in the night. Oh yeah! Uh, and I've been there, and it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's it's beautiful. An ex of mine was from New Jersey, so, and uh, I've seen like the tiny tree forests and things. Yeah, the pygmy pines. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really yeah, something. That's, that's they call that the pygmy plains, and it's if you go out Route seventy two, like on your way to Long Beach Island, that's that's where it's really prevalent. And they, to this day, have no idea why those trees grow like that. You know, they used to say it was because of the fires, but there's fires all over the Pine Barrens. And, you know, the regular, the trees grow to their regular height, except in that one spot. Well, because of those trees being like that, of course, I had to write a story about it. (laughs) And I actually had a girl 
girl that runs tours out there, and she called me up. She said, Paul, I want to thank you that I can finally tell people why the pygmy pines only grow no higher than five feet because of my story. And in my story, I have these little, they're called chackety chicks, and they're little elf creatures that came over on one of the Viking raids from Iceland to North America. And these chackety chicks, they got out of the cage. You know, the Vikings used to eat them and, and keep them, you know, in cages and take them on the journeys with them and they would eat them. But this, this boatload of them escaped and they ran and they ran and they ran. And they came down to South Jersey and they live on pines. The only thing they eat is pine sap. And they came into this one part of the pine barrens and that's, that's where they stay. And that's why those trees are stunted they only grow five feet high it's really it's really a crazy looking thing yeah if you've seen it i have because it's like you're a, you're a giant in a forest and it seemingly goes on for mile 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 which it does you know it's a pretty big part of the pine barrens yeah but yeah the pines are pines are a very special place there's no place like it in the world you know there's 30 different kinds of plants that grow in the pine barrens and nowhere else and plants that are indigenous to, like, the, the New England area, the furthest south they grow is the pine barrens. And plants that are indigenous to the south, the furthest north they grow is the pine barrens. They meet right here. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. And there's, there's animals and uh, salamanders and stuff, skinks that are indigenous to the Pine Barrens and nowhere else in the world. So it's, it's a special place. Yeah, it it's really got its is. own ecosystem. Does the Jersey Devil wreak havoc, or is it just one of those things where it was born and off it flew, and that was that? No, no, it's been wreaking havoc since it was born. Uh, the, the crazy thing about the Jersey Devil is, though, even before the white man got here in the 1600s, the Lenny Lenape have a word for the Pine Barrens, it's called papoosing, and translated that means the place of the serpent. So even even the Lenny Lenape have seen something in these woods uh, as far back as their history goes. So people ask me, you know, what is it? I, I say, well, it's something. So people are seeing something. Now there's all kinds of theories about what it could be. Some people think that somebody got a hammerhead bat from Australia and let it go in the Pine Barrens and they keep doing it to, you know, redo the legend again and again. And if you look at a hammerhead bat, it could be described as how people describe the Jersey Devil. I mean, it's got huge wings. The thing is, the, the wingspan is like six foot on this. It does have the head of a horse, kind of. So it, it looks kind of like what people are describing. But also, there is uh, a dimorphodon, which is a prehistoric flying creature that also looks like what people describe the Jersey Devil as. So, I mean, if there was a place on the East Coast or in the United States where something could go from one age to another, the Pine Barrens could be it. Because it's got everything there for it. It's got food. It's got trillions of gallons of water. And there's places in the Pine Barrens where there's zero people per square mile. So if something was going to hide, you know, here on the East Coast, the Pine Barrens would be the place. Absolutely. 
but it has it has wreaked havoc all over the years. In 1909, they call that Super Week, and thousands of people from Leeds Point, where it was born, all the way to Chester, Pennsylvania, saw it during this week. That ended on January 23rd, which is my birthday, by the way. <laughs> you just had a birthday. But yeah, they, all the books about the Jersey Devil, they will mention Super Week, and that's the week you're talking about in 1909. Why do you think but that is, that that particular week is the one? It hopped on trains. I mean, it was on the on the roof of trolley cars. Cops saw it. I mean, reputable people reported seeing this thing. And even the Philadelphia Zoo still has on the books a $10,000 reward for anybody that brings it dead or alive to the Philadelphia Zoo. So, you know, and there's been people that have found skeletons and bones and stuff like that that have tried to cash in, but they can't prove it's a Jersey Devil. Right. You, know, you, gotta, you gotta have the whole thing, I guess. They want the whole thing. The whole enchilada, for sure. Yep. Is the Jersey Devil I mean, your... I've heard it. I've heard it scream twice, and I have never heard anything like that in my life. It's... And that's anybody that says they've seen or heard the Jersey Devil, that's the one thing everybody says, and it's the truth. You have never heard anything in the world scream like that. And it puts the fear of God in you. It really does. How do you feel about other legends like the uh, Loch Ness Monster or uh, the, uh, you know, the... Um Yetis, but the American Yetis. Uh, I I believe Bigfoot. I believe there's I believe there's people seeing something. I don't dismiss it. Yeah. You know, and I think now that we all these all these video cameras and drones, if we don't find it in a couple of years, then I'm going to start saying, well, maybe it's not, because I mean these drones go anywhere. Yeah. And I have seen some drone footage of something awful big walking around in the woods. But these, they're, they're also smart enough to dodge stuff. And who knows if they can see the, the uh, ultraviolet light that usually, you know, cameras. The, the heat signatures, like sure. Right. So they might, they might know when somebody's getting close or somebody's, you know. Do you have an all-time favorite story you can tell? Oh, man. An all-time favorite story. Tell it like you were telling, tucking me in. I want to hear it that way. Uh, like I was tucking you in? Uh, what, like a spooky story? Sure. Uh, let's see. I would tell you a story about one time I was on a, a Boy Scout camp out, and they took us to a place in Pennsylvania. I don't know to this day where it was, but it was a survival camp out. And it was pouring rain. I mean, it was really raining bad. So they got us to the place, and it was raining so bad they didn't want to just let us out. Well, there happened to be an old abandoned house. And they said, okay, for this night only, you can sleep in the house. So I guess there was 12 or 15 of us and a couple scoutmasters. And they were supposed to just drop us, but because of the way it was raining and stuff, they stayed with us. So we were all laid out in our sleeping bags on the living room floor in this place. And I guess it was like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. But I woke up because I had to go to the bathroom. And I opened my eyes, and I was getting ready to get out of the uh, sleeping bag. And there's this guy standing there staring at us. But, uh, well, there's this figure 
standing there staring at us. And I couldn't make if it had clothes on. I couldn't make out if it was a man or a woman. But it was a humanoid, and it was huge. And it was just standing there staring at everybody laying on the floor. And as I think back on that and then hear the stories about the Bigfoot and the Yeti, I have got to think that had to be what was, I mean, nothing else would be out there in that kind of weather that far back in the middle of nowhere. And it just stood there and watched us. And I've always wondered, and I got got in that sleeping bag and just, you know, covered my eyes and hoped it would go away. And I wound up falling asleep and it was gone. But I always, to this day, wonder what that was that night. Yep. Have you ever seen a UFO or any kind of extraterrestrial? You know, I've seen stuff that I can't explain. When I lived in Nashville, I was sitting on the patio one night, and I saw this. It was a, it didn't blink. It was just a pinpoint of light. It actually looked like it was dodging its way through the star field. And I thought, that's how can that do that? And I just, I could not believe what I was saying. And, I mean, I've seen, you know, stuff go by real quick and probably meteors and stuff. I was, <laughs> I was visiting my mother one time and I left her apartment in Collingswood. And I'm going, I'm getting in the car and flying over my head. And it made no noise. It looked, the only thing I can, the only way I can describe it is it looked like a guy sitting in a lawn chair floating just floating right over top of me and i could not figure out what it was i still don't know what it was so you know i've seen dopey stuff like that but i'd really love to see a craft and have it come down and land i I would love to see that yeah i hope i hope i'm alive when they when they come here i really do my uh, only experience seeing a what would be considered an unidentified flying object. There were three of them in a triangular pattern, and I was in Nashville as well, walking my dog in the evening and looking up and watching these three points of light, and they maneuvered in a way that seemed, as you say, impossible, and then they, and then they, they flitted away. But there were three, and they were operating in tandem, which, I mean, it wow. was, I, I thought that was really something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can't believe that we are the only life. When you look out there and see stars, and I've been in some places, and, I mean, it's amazing how many stars. Each one of them are the sun. And there's planets. Are, and you're telling me this is the only right. place? Of, no. No. I can't be, and I'll tell you what else convinces me, that there's got to be technology that is not from Earth. About 1974, I was a, I worked as a... Uh, store detective you know to catch shoplifters and I saw all these people standing around the toy aisle the toy counter and I mean there were grown men going oh and really making a commotion so I got out of my perch and I came over to see what was going on and they looked uh, they were all looking at this thing about the size of a dinner platter that had four color lights on it and it was Simon the toy Simon. Yeah. Now here's the thing: the year before, there was no Simon. There was nothing like it. 
And for us to make that quantum leap, that jump, to go from not having something that technologically amazing to having it in a space of a year. Now, I just, I never bought, after that, I really started thinking, where did this come from? And they would say, well, the technology came from Bell Labs, but, you know, it just, for somebody like me that grew up when I did, I was born in 1955 and saw, you know, had Tonka trucks, to come into this age of technology so fast at that point. We have to be getting help. Something so dopey is Pong. It's Pong came out. I was working for a vending company delivering them. Every yeah. bar in South Jersey had to have a Pong. You know, people just could not believe. It is fun to think that there have been a little helps here and there technologically. Yeah. Especially now, because... Granted, I think we make advances constantly with from where we are, but I don't see any kind of leapfrog like there had been in the past. It's one thing exactly. to build on what we have, and the technological yep. advances are quite clearly building on what we have, but that big leap forward. Yep. They say right now that they can transmit every book that's ever been written in a billionth of a second. It's hard to get my head around that. Yeah, I know it. I mean, I've been here. I am talking to you. I know. Over, yeah. If somebody would have told me when I was uh, thirty years old that this could happen. Yeah. I would say you're out of your mind. Yeah. I mean, you know, and for me, that's the, that was the cool part about being born in the fifties to see all this happen. We used to get on a train. And ride to Philadelphia, cut class, and ride to Philadelphia to push the buttons on a phone. We couldn't believe you could call somebody by pushing a button. Because yeah. we had the dials. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that during the Industrial Revolution, there were people that felt the same way as well. But there does oh, seem yeah. something even more than when you consider the fact that you have these super speedy computers the size of you know your pocket. Yep. And smaller. Well, when you think about the technology in the phone that I'm holding, and they say this could have landed Apollo 11. Yeah. And when you look at the banks of computers it took to yeah. do that, and now you hold it in the palm of your hand, where did that come from? How can all that information be in this one little tiny thing? But I think about that with people like the Einsteins or the Teslas or, you know, these people where they, you know, they seem to have a little extra of whatever. Yep. 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 I think they were, I think, I think something's been revealed to them. I really do. Whether it was somehow implanted or however they do. And I'm sure that if that's the case, they're watching because, you know, there's a movie called Contact. Yes, I love it. Right? It's from a book Carl by S Carl Sagan. Yeah. Yep. And there's a part in there where she meets her father. And one of the one questions she asks is, how do we survive the technology? That, to me, is amazing to think about. Because, you know what? I wonder that myself. Yeah. How do we survive this? Yeah. It is an interesting quandary. Because yep. with every step forward, technologically, we lose, in some ways, some of our humanity. And sure. now, in a weird irony, of course, we are creating AI that will encompass humanity and technology. And then what will that supersede? Yep. 
Yep, you got to wonder what's coming. That's certainly the truth. Yeah, pretty But well. hopefully, you know, we pass down and, and enough people hear the storytellers that they want to carry it on. Yeah. But I'm, I'm so afraid. I, I had a couple of my grandkids in my van, and we were riding around and said, what are we riding around for, Pop? I said, I want us to write a book. And I wanted them to think. And I said, we're going to write up this book about the Pine Barrens tree frog. And we're going to have her have adventures. And we actually got a book written by riding around and everybody bouncing ideas off. And I recorded it. And then I typed it and got it all together and saved it in book form. I mean, I, I really hope that people continue, the, you know, telling stories and the bars open back up. Because that's really how, like, I honed my craft. Like, I would tell stories in between sets. And I love doing that. I just, I've always loved it. And people enjoy it. People enjoy hearing somebody tell them stories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's why shows like this are popular, because we get to hear other people's stories. That's it. Yeah. So as a songwriter, is your music then also in that same vein where you're, it's not just for the sake of the song, but you're actually getting stories across? Yes. Yep. A lot of my songs, most of my songs are story songs, which when I moved to Nashville, when I did was the kiss of death because <laughs> they didn't want story songs. They wanted real uh, commercial, hooky, you know, you sing the chorus for three minutes. Right. And that's that's the kind of stuff that we're selling. You know, stuff like Harry Chapin's, you know, his songs and story songs like that. And the real, the real uh, storytellers, you know, song storytellers, I, that's my favorite stuff. But for commercial AM or FM radio, that's not, that's not what was happening. Yeah. But, I, you know, I had some success. I had a song called Cape Lonely that was actually, you know, a story song that was recorded by Michael Mason and it got as far as number 31 on Billboard. And that was my one-hit wonder. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. I moved to Nashville and I was there on and off for 10 years. And it wasn't until I came home and started singing songs about the Pine Barrens that I got successful. You know, I, I combined these songs with my uh, book signings. And my publisher loved it. He, nobody was sure it was going to work or not. You know, who sings at a book signing? But I started doing it and it caught on uh, to the fact that I had other authors learning guitar chords and stuff because they wanted to do it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, but I, I do five or six Pine Barren songs uh, intermingled with the stories out of my book, and it turned into a one-hour, sometimes hour-and-a-half show. So, yeah, it really, I went a long way to learn how to, to you know, you're, you're a, uh, your own fish in your own pond. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's good to do what you know and to do what you that's love. It. That's where the success lies. Do you personally think that... Children ghosts or adult ghosts are more scary? Children of ghosts? Um, well, I'll tell you what. In, in the house I had in Hamilton, we lived in a farmhouse. And, I mean, this, this farmhouse was an old, old farmhouse. And I would see a little girl sitting on the fifth step of the staircase that went to the second floor. And down the bottom of that staircase was a window. And she would sit on that fifth step 
which would put her about as tall as she would be if she was standing in front of and just look out the window. And I would see this all the time. And then when we got towards uh, Halloween and Thanksgiving, I would see a man smoking a pipe going back and forth, back and forth like he was getting the meal set on the table. And I asked the landlady that owned the house, I said, let me ask you a question. She goes, what? I said, did your father smoke a pipe? And she started crying. And she said, yeah, he did. And I said, let me ask you another question. Did anybody in your family fall down them steps? And she took off. She couldn't deal with it. So I always heard that she had a sister that went down. So, you know, that was a very active house. Yeah. And, and clearly you, know you have a gift. You clearly have a shining to you. The guy liked me. Yeah. And I, I think about him a lot. And, and the little girl did too. But every house I've ever lived in, I knew I was going to live in that house. I knew it, as soon as we saw this house, as soon as my wife and I pulled up into this carport, I said, we're home. And uh, these people did not like us. These two people that lived here, it took a couple years and I finally feel, but you know, my dog sees them all the time and he doesn't like them or they don't like him. There's a conflict with my dog and the owners that, you know, cause I know I'm pretty sure she died in that bedroom. I don't know where he died, but uh, she died in the bedroom I sleep in. And for a long time, I would hear bangs. I mean, stuff to try to scare me. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't seen seen yet, but I'm, it's getting close. How long have you lived it's in this house? Five years. Okay. Uh, no, six years. Six, six years. years. Yeah. Yep. But they were conflicted. The people that lived here, they stayed together for their whole, but they were, I think they fought a lot. And yeah, I think there was some problems with her business. She was a hairdresser. And I don't know that he liked that. And I hear that he was kind of like, I guess he was getting into uh, um, Alzheimer's because he went out front here with a shotgun, uh, yeah, towards my neighbor for putting a mailbox on the wrong side of the street. And yeah, and so I've heard some stories about him. But she's calming down. She, it's. I'm not sure they know they've... Died? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So it's like when we come in the house, it's like, what are you doing in here? You know, that, that's the feeling I get. I still get, but it's not as bad. She's starting to accept it more. Have you explained? Have you, like, said out loud, hey, y'all, you know, you've passed... Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. call her by name, Ethel. Yeah. It's all right, Ethel, you know. And I'm not, I, I haven't done the whole explanation thing and tried to tell them, you know. Yeah. I, I, I just don't feel yet. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're here. They're absolutely it. here. Yep. You're a special guy, Paul. You, you uh, I don't know. You know, I had a guitar player that lived in Mount Holly, which is a very old town. And he lived in the carriage house which was where service stuff would live. And I went over there to pick him up and take him to a gig one time. And I walked up these steps. Oh, I can say it right now. I walked up these steps, and I could not get out of that house fast enough. Oh, I told her, I said, Jesse, 
there's there's something in that house that I'm not getting along with. And I could not. There's places that I can't go in. There's a part of the Berlin Mark, which is a huge store. Woo! I don't know what happened there, but when I get there, it's, and it's only in front of this one place, it's I get this bad vibe. Horrible. And so I, I go out of my way not to go in that part of the Berlin Mark. I don't, you know, who knows if it's a future thing. You know, I don't know. Wow. I always listen. I always listen to my gut feelings. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it's, it's always served me. I'm the only musician I know that hasn't got a DUI. <laughs> and I'm 66 and I've been drinking for most of them years. <laughs> but I've never got a DUI. I've always listened to that little voice that's, don't go out tonight. You know, some, I wrote a song called You Got an Angel on Your Shoulder, and I sure do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. I should have bought it a couple times, and here I am. Here you are. Paul, yeah. how can people find you and your uh, your books on Amazon, The Legendary Pine Barrens? What? Yeah, it's on, it's on Amazon. It's on a couple other sites, and they can always get a hold of me on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. It's Paul Evans Patterson Jr., or in parentheses, Paul Evans, because I always played by Paul Evans. You know, the, my first record was released Paul Evans. Or they can they can get a hold of me on email. I can, I can give them my email address if they want to get a hold of me. It's Cookbo, C-O-O-K-B-E-A-U-X, at I'm still on AOL.com. <laughs> One of the last holdouts. And I'll put links for all of your stuff. on oh, I'm sorry, the- one more. Oh. Uh, down the, downthepines.com. Downthepines.com. Okay, great. I'll put all of the links on Hey Human Podcast so that people can find it easily as well. Paul, this is great. I could hear stories from you all day. I love this kind of thing. Yes, I've got to have a good feeling between us. Yeah, thank you for... I talked to you the first time. I heard it right away. Oh, thanks. Same. (laughs) Paul, thank you so much for your time today and uh, the great stories. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Yeah, and also... Thank you for uh, your service as a fireman. I think that that goes that that's a big deal, and thank you for that too. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed working in the fire service. It's very rewarding. Yeah. You know when you when you when you weigh the good and the bad, the good the good wins. Amen. Let's say uh, yeah. I sure hope so. That's what I'm rooting for at least. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.